Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. My next guest is Kezia Okafor. Kezia is a fertility counselor and coach and author of the book, Flipping the Script on Infertility, Taking Back Control of Life and Purpose. And one of the things that really drew me to Kezia's work is her deep belief in the connection between mind and body. Welcome, Kezia. If trauma can affect our health, part of health is fertility. So it has to have an impact. And there's all kinds of trauma. And what we're really talking about is how I respond in situations, in crises. And the way I responded as a child in a crisis is the same way I'm going to respond as an adult if I haven't had therapy to help me manage it. And that's what we're really talking about when it comes to trauma and our fertility, because that's what this work is about, really especially in the mind-body connection, how do we lower the stress response? Stress hormones are no good for our health in general, but also no good for our fertility either. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit and hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility Journey Life Hacks. Here's the tip of the week. On my show, I talk a lot about environmental toxins, and I have a real love-hate with this topic. Obviously, I love to share education and give people information about how they can make changes in their life that can help to benefit them by reducing their exposures. At the same time, I know that this topic can be kind of upsetting, kind of make you feel overwhelmed and can really send you on a rabbit hole where you can really like freak out about all this stuff. I'm not going to lie. I went through that myself when I started learning about the topic. And my point of doing all of this, as I've mentioned many, many times before, is never to overwhelm, but really to help educate And understand that small changes do matter. And we see this with environmental toxins. A great example of that is with the Hermosa study where they gave teen girls new products that were cleaner products. They collected urine from them when they were using regular products. They swapped out their regular products and then three days later got urine samples and they compared the levels of the chemical metabolites that were found in the urine, we saw a significant reduction in just three days. Three days. So imagine that every little bit you do helps. And I want to remind you about that. Today, I wanted to talk a little bit about BPA-free products. Because I get asked that question a lot. What about BPA-free products? Is that good? You know, the fact of the matter is BPA-free has become somewhat of a marketing tool or a a way that a company can kind of just change their formulation with just a very small change, but then we're basically in the same situation. 
they know that the public has started to catch on that BPA potentially can be dangerous. There are links to issues with thyroid disease, obesity, diabetes, infertility. It impacts male sperm health. It impacts egg health. It has been linked to things like endometriosis and PCOS, and the list goes on. And so consumers are starting to become wise to BPA, and more and more people are trying to find alternatives. The easiest alternative is for them to switch and use BPS because it's not BPA then, right? It's BPA-free. But the problem is that we're using a different, what we call sister bisphenol, a BPS or a BPF. They really have almost the same chemical structure. And the thing is, the data is not as substantial for those bisphenol alternatives, but the data that we do have shows that they act in very similar manners. And so we should really be very cautious about just accepting these type of chemicals without question. And I think that's one of the problems we have in the first place. And the reason we're in all of this is that we just accept chemicals into our environments without question. We just accept chemicals into our food system or into the shelves, and then we wait for years and years of evidence to tell us that it's not safe. The short answer really is that BPA-free, I would say, isn't any better than using a BPA plastic bottle. And so really trying to look for other options when it comes to buying your food, if you can. I mean, it's like, here we go again. It would be easy for me to just sit here and say, well, you should buy all your foods in glass. But if you go to the store, it sometimes is really difficult to find, for example, tomato sauce that's not packaged in a can. That's really hard. And so just being mindful of not buying all your food in cans, see if you can find it in a glass container if possible. Do they have it in the frozen section? Trying to find alternative ways to reduce exposure. We reduce BPA exposure. Just a little quick reminder here. Reducing plastic exposure like plastic water bottles, like Tupperware, trying not to handle receipts. If you do handle receipts on a consistent basis using gloves, definitely washing your hands after handling receipts. And trying to opt for glass when possible if you're purchasing drinks. A lot of our drinks do come in plastic, and that really is because for companies it's hard to transport glass bottles. It's much heavier. There's more risk for damage to the product. So plastic has made it easier for products to be distributed at a lower cost for the company. And so we're seeing less and less things packaged in glass. But it's just something that we be aware of. I think there are many people who may be consistently consuming all of their water from plastic bottles. And so trying to switch to filtered water with using a stainless steel or glass bottle, that would be the way to go. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. My next guest is Kezia Okafor. Kezia is a fertility counselor and coach and author of the book, Flipping the Script on Infertility, Taking Back Control of Life and Purpose. And one of the things that really drew me to Kezia's work is her deep belief in the connection between mind and body. And I'm so excited to have her share more with you today. Welcome, Kezia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. You are very 
passionate about the mind-body connection. How did you come to have these strong beliefs about the importance of supporting the mind-body connection? It seems pretty obvious when you really think about it, but in all honesty, very little attention is paid to that. Yeah, I think through my own journey of going through infertility and then finding and meeting lots of different practitioners along the way. And then just with my own therapy work, it was just like the mind-body to me makes sense that actually a lot of what I was feeling when I was in my struggles was in my mind. Sounds hard to believe that it's the things that you say to yourself. It's the things that you give meaning to. And that made it worse. And when I stopped thinking those things, even though I was still going through infertility, I did, it wasn't the turmoil, the distress just wasn't there. And so that mind-body link is so important, although we tend to separate it in our society. And mm -hmm. actually in part of that was in research for my book is that I started to really research that mind-body connection and where did it go? Where did we lose it and when? Because it hasn't always been this way. Um, All right. It was really with the, the start of modern medicine, I guess, is when we lost that connection and that understanding that actually we are whole beings, we are whole selves, and that it's more than just the body. And my therapy practice helped with that as well. I trained as an art therapist and we use the body as well a lot especially when it comes to the subconscious. So it's something that I think is starting to reemerge in our society, but I think we've still got a long way to go when it comes to that. Yeah, I think, as you said, it was there in the past. Yes. If you look back at traditional medicine, like traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurveda or certain other ancient therapies, there's a lot of talk about the connection between mind-body, but and you're correct in that now conventional medicine really doesn't pay attention. I'm not really sure how we lost it, but we know that certain things like stress can cause physical ailments. So it should be something that we pay attention to, that connection and how it impacts certain disease processes and perhaps our fertility. Yeah, I think there's an underestimation in medicine, but in the wider society of how mm -hmm. powerful our minds really are. And I do think there's a reemergence of that understanding and it can only help us really, I think. I definitely agree. And I, I think you're right. There is this reemergence. So hopefully we're going to see some changes in that area. Now, mm. you had your own fertility journey. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So everyone's got a story and everyone's is slightly different, I know. But I always felt that mine was a little bit unique in the sense here in the UK. I already had a child and me and my husband, when my son was about two, we started to try for another baby. But it didn't happen. And I wasn't too concerned at first, but it didn't happen straight away. But I think when it got you know a year 18 months I thought this isn't right and I think my distress levels mm -hmm. were quite high for lots of reasons motherhood itself was quite challenging and then wanting another baby and that wasn't happening mm -hmm. I think I found myself in a little bit of despair but unfortunately here in the UK we have NHS but you can't get fertility mm -hmm. treatment if you already have a child and so there was mm -hmm. no access to fertility treatment that way so I ended up really looking for lots of alternative medicines and therapies. I tried all different kinds of things, acupuncture, 
reflexology, nutritionist, mm-hmm. all different kinds of diets. I was Googling all the time and I realized it was getting to a point where it was actually getting quite out of hand. And this went on for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And then I eventually met a osteo. It was like the last throw of the dive. And he mm-hmm. helped me with my mindset. Funny enough, I went for osteo. But I ended up meeting <laughs> someone who could help me with my mindset. And he helped me to see that actually a lot of my distress was just around the way I was thinking about my fertility struggles. And actually there was mm-hmm. lots of positives in having A, being unexplained. In fact, that there was, it's quite good that there's yeah. no reason. It's quite good that there's not a physical reason why. Mm-hmm. Whereas I was taking it as all very negative. Right. And he just helped me to kind of release those kind of mental blocks I guess and yes and so nine years later after my first son we had another son but it it was a real journey I guess I never gave up hope but I think there was Mm -hmm. a real having to come to acceptance that this might not happen especially after seven or so years but yeah I Mm -hmm. think there is something about really kind of finding yourself along the journey and learning to support yourself and that was that was a big part of my journey in the end. Having the diagnosis unexplained is so difficult. And I mean, as you said, it doesn't have to be all negative. But when you first get that diagnosis, you're, you're like, wait, what do you mean? There's nothing you can give me. We want answers. We always want something mm-hmm. tangible that we can know how to fix. And I imagine that was even more difficult to understand in the context of now secondary infertility. You yeah. had a pregnancy seemingly with no issues and now here you are with this infertility where did that come from how did that happen now it's unexplained and so it must have been very difficult to be in a space where you didn't have a lot of answers completely difficult it like you said it didn't make sense I've already had a child and it was a normal pregnancy it took us about a year to get pregnant but from what I understand that's perfectly normal and Mm -hmm. a, a healthy pregnancy a healthy child and so it didn't make sense there was something not right about it and it didn't sit right with me. And I think that was where a lot of my distress came from was like, I'm trying to find a, a fix to something that I don't know what I'm trying to fix. And so I think that's where the Googling came in. That's where all the therapies came in of trying to understand yeah. what is going on with me and why isn't this happening? And having people sitting in front of me, not giving me answers and not really sure and kind of looking at me as like Mm -hmm. a bit of a puzzle and and keep going Mm -hmm. to different therapies and having people go, we don't know why. We'll try and help you and we'll get you pregnant, but we don't know why you're not getting pregnant. And I'm feeling really a bit let down and um, disillusioned by the whole thing. I'm feeling like nobody could help me. It was a really, I don't know, frustration would probably be the appropriate word. But my husband was amazing. <laughs> he would just say, we're not infertile. And he was way ahead of me when it came to mindset. <laughs> Give him his credit. He was just like, we're not infertile. There's nothing that's stopping this from happening. We just have to have faith. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't, you know. And I imagine that was difficult though, right? For your yeah. husband to be saying, hey, don't worry, it's going to be fine. When your partner sees you in so much distress, they're really trying to take away your distress in some way. And I think there were moments when I would see his distress and he would say, I really want another one and, and it would be really lovely. 
And I would see, oh, he is on my page. He is where I'm at. But the times when he would be like, we're not infertile, we're not this. Yeah. I think sometimes it's hard because they have a different way of dealing with it. Exactly. And to us, it seems like maybe they're not upset, but they really are. Yes, exactly. And, and I think that's part of the work that I do with my clients is understanding that actually men deal with things in very different ways and they want to be able to fix things. And when they can't, they want to kind of be able to take away your your sadness and your distress. And they really are almost bystanders in this thing, in this whole process, really. I think they just feel like they're tagging along for the ride mm -hmm. because the focus is really on the woman and yeah. we just have to understand that they are in distress it just presents in different ways and it's not the way we want them to show it but it is there yeah definitely I agree that's one of the difficulties is having them just show it in a different way and us not being able to understand where they're coming from so I think communicating your feelings to each other is important so you can realize, hey, you know, we're in this together. We're both struggling. We just show it in a different way. Yeah. And that's not always easy to communicate that. I think one of the other things about secondary infertility is that sometimes, and I don't know if you experience that, is that if you're working with your general doctor in the beginning, they don't really pay as much attention to that maybe there is a problem because you had a pregnancy in the past seemingly with no issues. So they say, oh, you're fine and you're young and you can just keep trying at it. And then on the other side, in the non-medical community, it's like, well, you have a child already. Be grateful. Why are you so caught up in worrying? And it's almost like we don't get the same kind of support. Yeah, it, it's a weird place to be in. So initially you're mm -hmm. not really taken seriously and then you kind of downplay it as well because you think, well, I've got one and should be grateful. In fact, I am grateful. I never said I wasn't grateful. And for me, my doctors were very kind of dismissive. You're young. You've already got a baby. Just get on with it. Don't worry about it. Until I met one gynecologist who was really good and she did get the ball rolling and she did see, let's just see what's going on at least. And then... It is different from primary, but the emotions are the same. This is what I always say to, to women that I work with, that the emotions are the same, the distress mm -hmm. is the same, because it's really about your identity and what you thought was possible in your life. And so whether you've yeah. got a child or you haven't got a child, this is about in here, isn't it? Like I thought mm -hmm. I was going to have one child or I thought I was going to have five children. Right. And as soon as whatever it is that you imagined doesn't seem like it's going to happen, that's when the distress kicks in. And so I think there's mm -hmm. a real misunderstanding around that when it comes to secondary infertility, is that it's not that you're not grateful for what you have. It's just that the idea of who you are and what your life was going to be is compromised or seems to be compromised. And that's the same mm -hmm. whether it's primary or secondary infertility. It's really having to re almost negotiate or reevaluate what you thought life was going to look like. It's really hard. It's, it, it's the internal, it's the mental, your internal world that is falling apart. And that's the thing that you have to really work on, if that makes sense. <laughs> it's almost like, grieving the idea of what 
you thought your family was going to look like, what you thought the path was going to be. I mean, there's a certain amount of grief that goes on in just accepting the idea that now you may have to conceive through assistance as opposed yes. to having this idea that it was going to happen for you without assistance, or you imagined your family as having two children or three children, and that doesn't pan out. There's a certain amount of grieving that goes with that. Yeah. Whatever the circumstance is, there is a grieving period. And it, it sounds weird to grieve something that never existed. But really, you are having to reform that internal map of your belief systems, your values, your self-identity. You're reconstructing that. And part of that is grieving what didn't happen or grieving how you thought it was going to be, what you thought it was going to look like. And there's a process that you kind of have to go through in, with any grief and with any sadness is kind of allowing yourself to feel that. A lot of the times we don't allow ourselves to feel that because we feel like we shouldn't. I shouldn't feel those things. I shouldn't feel that way because nobody's died. There's no funeral. There's no, right. you know, there's no flowers. There's no wake. Like, why do I feel this way? And a lot of the times we do because we're human and we get to feel those things. Mm -hmm. And it sounds weird, but the, the more we acknowledge those feelings, those heavy, sad feelings, the better we end up feeling in the long run. And I think the idea of that really is kind of the argument that anyone who's struggling with infertility or is going through infertility treatment really should be working with somebody, whether that be an infertility therapist or fertility coach or somebody to just help them work through that. Because I think everyone is dealing with a certain amount of grief, no matter what the circumstances. Yeah, you do need that support. Going back nine years, I wish there was more of that. There's certainly a lot more help out there now, which is great and, and fantastic. It's absolutely needed. And I think the more help in that way with counsellors or therapists or coaches is needed because we need women out there to understand that the emotional support, the mental support is just as important as going for the fertility treatment like it's all part of it that it's like a package deal it's about supporting right. you the person the woman to become a mother instead of just getting her pregnant it's more than that we right. want to take care of her and the grief is part of it and I think a lot of women out there need to know it's normal to be sad it's normal to grieve this process and to feel like oh it's awful or whatever it is that she's experiencing whatever right. the stress she's experiencing it's normal and you need support with that and I think it makes it harder that we don't talk about fertility issues as much it's getting better now I will say but yeah. there's not a lot of places for someone to go to discuss it even though your family may love you your sister your mom your cousin whoever it is they don't have an understanding, perhaps. And so it makes it difficult for you to be able to communicate with them and get the support you need during that time. And then just being out in the world, experiencing triggers all the time. And so there's not a lot of places to go. And which is why I go back to working with someone who has an understanding of what you're dealing with and can help you work through those feelings and understand, like you said, that it is very normal to go through that. 
Yeah. A lot of times we go back to our families, we go back to our friends, we go back to what we know for support and we rely on those dynamics for support. The only thing about that, like you said, is that sometimes it's not a support because either they haven't been through it or they don't give us the support in the way that we need it. And what I mean by that is a lot of the time with family and friends is because they love us, because they're well-intentioned, they tend to want to reassure rather than to sit with Mm -hmm. the sadness and the grief. Yes. They want to make it better as they would. When you think of your mum when you was a child and you fell over, she wanted to make it better, right? That's her role. And that's the family's role is to kind of come around you and make it better. But what I find with my clients is that it's that I don't need it to be made better. I need people to understand that actually I'm really scared that I might not become a mother. I need them to face that reality with me. I don't need them to say to me, don't worry. Of course it's going to happen. Because that doesn't meet my pain. doesn't see the pain that I'm in the moment. And so Mm -hmm. while you go back to your family and families are great, until you can have the confidence to be like, actually, that's not really helpful. What I need you to do is just listen. I don't need you to reassure. I don't need you to make it all better. That's a a harder thing to do. And that's why I think that coaches and therapists are so important because they're not there to make this necessarily better. They're there to support you to manage the emotions and the feelings and all the rest of it through the process and to help you through the process rather than to necessarily say, it's all going to be okay. Because we are the ones who know yeah. that we can't guarantee that, right? Yes. They're trying to make it better, but it's like dismissing my feelings that they're not real. Yeah. It's not that bad. Just get on with it. Yeah. And I think it's because in just society in general, actually sitting with emotions and talking about emotions is quite hard for a lot of people. A lot of people don't know what to do with their emotions. And also they don't know what to do with other people's emotions, which is why well, most people are easily triggered because, mm-hmm. and they're out there, anger, and you get trolls, and you get all that kind of stuff because they're just kind of reacting all the time and they don't know what to do with their emotions. So the family is, is the same. Families don't necessarily know how to handle emotions and they don't especially know how to handle big emotions, those big kind of anger yeah. or sadness or the frustrations and the resentment. Families hold all kinds of traumas. Some are unspoken and some are spoken about. So it gets a little bit murky and a little bit messy when it comes to emotions. And a lot of us haven't been brought up with that emotional intelligence. And so it's just not within our families, unfortunately. And we can't expect it to be there when all of a sudden we find ourselves in a crisis like infertility. But all of a sudden everyone's going to get emotionally intelligent. It's just not going to happen. And so the job really is for us to take responsibility on ourselves and say, okay, I'm going to learn how to take care of my emotions. I'm going to learn how to take care of my own mental health, my own well-being, physical or whatever. It's my responsibility to do that. It's not anyone else's, unfortunately. 
And I think that's hard because sometimes we want a certain reaction from our families. And sometimes the family dynamic is different. And one of the things that we don't talk about is how our past traumas or our past childhood traumas can perhaps impact our fertility journey. I mean, that's something I almost never see talked about. But I always wonder about that when I see patients. We know certain adverse child events can translate into physical problems later on. How much of that is impacting the fertility journey? Who can say? But I think it's a really important point to make that trauma, and we are getting more trauma aware in society. I, I see it more. We are speaking about trauma more. We are far more aware of trauma in terms of our health and well-being. We're getting there in terms of our fertility. I would say we're not really quite there. But if trauma can affect our health, and we know that, like you said, then surely part of health is fertility. So it has to have an impact. The thing with trauma, and there's all kinds of trauma, like you said, childhood trauma. And what we're really talking about is how I respond in situations, in crises. And the way I responded as a child in a crisis is the same way I'm going to respond as an adult if I haven't had therapy to help me manage it. And that's what we're really talking about when it comes to trauma and our fertility. It's not necessarily that I, I could be re-traumatized. And that's why it's an important thing to be aware of, especially as fertility and practitioners, that someone could get re-traumatized through their treatment, especially if there's been sexual trauma. We should be aware of that. But even childhood trauma, how can someone be re-triggered? How can someone be responding in a, in a trauma response? And so what we're talking about is when stress levels go up, how do I deal with stress in this situation? What kind of conditioning, what kind of behavioral choices do I make? Like, how do I treat myself? How do I respond mentally? And a lot of the times it's how we internalize the world. So I've been through traumas in my past. It might be that I become really hard on myself and other people. I might have really high standards. My anxiety might increase. There's so many different ways that someone could respond to a trauma, but it's being just aware of how do we lower the stress response? Because that's what this work is about, really, especially in the mind-body connection. Right. How do we lower the stress response when someone's there? So we want them to start understanding and start being aware of their feelings, their emotions but also the stress when they need to bring the anxiety down because it's a major thing. We don't want the body to remain in a stress response, not just from infertility, but in life in general, because we know that those stress hormones are no good for our health in general, but also no good for our fertility either. It's a huge area that probably could be its own podcast topic, mm -hmm. really. And I think maybe there needs to be research done in there as well because it is a huge thing in understanding how we can help people who may be in a trauma response. There's trauma that also comes, unfortunately, on the fertility journey. You know, those who deal with loss, those who deal with repeated unsuccessful cycles, those who also deal with pregnancy trauma or yeah. trauma during their delivery. That can impact their fertility after that and their ability to go through treatment after a previous traumatic pregnancy. 
Of course. I mean, part of my own story and part of my therapy was looking at, I had a difficult birth with my first son. And I think part of the block was not wanting to experience that again. But it takes a while to unpick that. It was part of the process. It was part of my journey to go through of how to let that go and to work through that trauma. And we talk about the stress response and trauma response in really quite a way, but actually what it's doing is protecting the person. When we understand that it's Mm -hmm. just protection, it doesn't want you to experience that thing again. We don't want to do that again because that wasn't cool. That wasn't safe. We don't want to go there again. And once you understand that that's what it is, then you can work with it and say, okay, but we're not there anymore. We're not there. We're in a completely different space. But the brain doesn't know that. The amygdala just brings up all the memories, all the feelings, all the emotions. And it's our job to say, okay, hold on. I know what's going on, but I'm not there. And we get to work it through and we get to say, okay, these are the things that we can put in place, you know, to support this now. How can we not have a traumatic birth next time? How can we get through pregnancy differently next time? How can we deal with the grief of the losses? How can we help to heal that and create different expectations in the future instead of reliving what we've already experienced? So that's part of the work, especially the mindset work of trying to unpick those mental associations that we have with the traumas that we've been through. It's hard sometimes to realize that you need help to work through all of that because it seems like you're functioning fine. You know, we expect that you need to get help for mental health when you're dealing with severe mental issues like a severe depression, severe anxiety that makes you unable to really do anything. But most of us are dealing with low-level things and we're continuing to go through life but not working through those issues. I think everybody can benefit from working with someone and working that out totally and I'll put my hands up when I first went into my therapy training I was the first person to say I don't need therapy but when you come into therapy after a while you realize ah I've got all of this stuff in my emotional mental backpack that I've been carrying around for years and I didn't know that was a thing I didn't know that actually I need to pay attention to that and I need to work through that. I didn't know that it was still unconsciously in the background playing its part. A lot of us, like you said, are carrying around low-level things, but low-level things stack up. And then we come into a crisis like a health crisis or a relationship crisis or a work crisis, whatever it might be. And then those low-level things all of a sudden are massive, but we've been carrying them around for a really long time. Like I said, they, they kind of stack up. So most people, I would say nearly all people in the world do need help to kind of work through that stuff. But we mm-hmm. have been taught to just kind of keep going, like just get on with it, just get on with it. We hear that so much, keep moving. But actually, no, I think we're starting now to understand that actually, no, we can't just keep it moving. We do need to take care of those things. It opened your eyes when you met with the osteopath who really talked to you about perhaps there's something in your unconscious that is contributing to your infertility. And that was hard initially for you to really recognize. 
How did you come to accept that idea that perhaps there was something to what he was saying? That's a really good question. So it took a while. When he first said it, I was completely triggered by it. I was so angry. It was the first time I met him and he said that. But I, I couldn't get it out of my head. That was the first bit. And I couldn't get the idea of, well, that's the ultimate in self-sabotage, isn't it? If, you, if it's mm-hmm. in your unconscious, then that's self-sabotage. And I'm doing it to myself. And I couldn't quite grapple that. So the only person to grapple it with was the person who said it. <laughs> so I had to go back and see him mm-hmm. and work it through. And at first I was very resistant to what he was saying. And then I was like, but on weirdly some level, this makes sense. And I don't know why, but somewhere in the back of my mind, I was like, and deep in my heart, I feel like that makes sense to me. I think I'd been on my whole fertility journey looking for someone to help me, looking for someone to give me a fix and solve the puzzle. And it was like he gave me the missing pig. Like, ah, okay. Mm -hmm. I can do something about that. And so it was a long, lengthy process. I worked with him for about two years. And it wasn't just on fertility, but in the beginning, it was really around my mindset. And there was a period in the time where I said, okay, I'm not going to think about getting pregnant. I just want to work on myself. But he helped me to get to that point to realize that actually I had to work on myself a bit and work on um, my mind-body connection, work on my stress levels, my anxiety, all the things that I didn't really, if you'd said to me, I had anxiety, I would have said, no, I don't have anxiety. But I realized, actually, Mm -hmm. I do, and I do need to work through these things. Even though I'd also been in therapy, I think you have to have an open mind sometimes. So I always say now that not all triggers are bad. The reaction to the triggers Mm -hmm. are bad because we are defending heavily against it because we don't want to believe something or it threatens our beliefs and our values. But when I looked at it, I was like, okay, it's not so bad. There's something here that makes sense to me. So it started off as a trigger, but in the long run, it was a pivotal moment that almost changed my life. Not almost, it did. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that was difficult, though, because when you talk about doing that work, that's not quick work. That's something that takes a really long time. And most of the time we want someone to give us information that's going to be a quick fix that's going to get you to pregnancy right away so it's really hard to be able to like peel it back and slow down and go I need to do this work how did you manage that yeah it's so true we we do want a quick fix what I find is the more I've done this work I realize that this idea of having quick fixes actually we end up coming right back to where we were in the beginning because it's not sustainable And to really do this work is, I say this is lifetime work. I still do my mindset Mm -hmm. practices. I still do my meditation. I still do all of my therapies and my work on myself because I know that this is lifetime work. It took me 30 odd years to get to the point where I realized I needed to do this. That's 30 years of unpicking conditioning and repeated patterns and all that kind of stuff. So this isn't quick work. And the problem when we're doing infertility is that we want to 
get pregnant quickly, right? Because we are getting older, we're not getting younger. And we're told mm-hmm. lots of information about that. And there's lots of fear around that. And so part of my work was to reframe my relationship with time and also let go and accept that I couldn't control certain things and that it wasn't my job to control those things either. And that was new for me. But yeah, one of the biggest things was that relationship with time. And what we really want to do is start to look at how can I reframe time instead of making it like something that I fear and anxiety producing, how can I reduce the fear around time? And sometimes we have to trick our minds into things and talk (laughs) ourselves into what we want (laughs) to reduce the anxiety because the anxiety really and the fear is fault. And so if they're my fault, I can change the thought to whatever isn't going to cause me anxiety. And that's it. Time is a construct. And so I get to reframe time. Part of my work was I have plenty of time, just in general, just in my day. Yeah. (laughs) Because I think a lot of the time our world feels so fast. Social media and everything is fast. Mm -hmm. Do this, do that. Get pregnant now. Don't leave it too late. Everything's like do, 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 do. Um, It feels like the the world is saying, hurry up, you're running out of time. You get to 30 and if you're not married with kids and got the house and the car and the job and everything perfect, then it's over. And it's like one of the reframes I had to do was go, well, how long do I intend to live? And this is one of the things I work on with my clients. Like, how long do you intend to live? Feels like a really weird question. But when you start to think about Mm -hmm. how long I intend to live, well, I I think I'm going to live to about 90, maybe even 100. Who knows? But when I say 90, then I suddenly go, well, why am I worried at 30? What Mm -hmm. am I going to do with, you know, 60 more years? You know, if we listen to the world, the world says life's over at 30. But wait, hold on. I've got 60 more years. And I started to realize that, wait, I don't have enough stuff, enough dreams to fill 60 years. And that reduced mm-hmm. my anxiety around everything. But actually, time is what I say it can be, not what I'm told it can be. I love that because you're really right that we have this schedule mapped out. Okay, mm-hmm. I should get married by this age and I have, should have kids by this age and I'm going to have X number of kids and I'm going to have a house and I'm going to have my career all figured out. And so we've mapped it all out. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the difficulties in when we hit something that's a roadblock to what our plan was is, wait a minute, this is not the timeline I thought. I thought I was going to have a child by age 30 and I was going to have them spaced two years apart. And what happens when that doesn't pan out? Yeah. And that's part of the distress of infertility is that it's disrupted the plan in our head. It's disrupted the self-identity, what we thought and expected was going to happen. And we have to reevaluate it. And a lot of the time we think, oh no, that's it. It's over. If I don't have the kids by 30 and they're spaced out every two years and then I'll be 40 and we're doing the maths and it's nine months if I get pregnant now and then they'll be that age. And we're trying to work it all out because we're trying to control the uncertainty. But part of this work is learning that I can't control it. 
and that it's not the uncertainty that's the issue because life is generally uncertain it's that I'm trying to control it and manage it and have it perfect but actually that's not the way life works life just flows and things will happen when they happen and I have to almost let go of trying to need it to happen on my time schedule I Mm -hmm. have to come into a point where I go I want it to happen. So one of the things I would say to my clients, if if your stalk came in five years' time, would you say, no, 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 you're too late, stalk. Mm-hmm. I wanted that baby five years ago. Would mm-hmm. we do that? No. So it's like I have to just accept that, well, first of all, do I want it to happen? Do I want a baby? And if the answer is yes, then yeah. And then I have to really know that's what I want. And then I have to just allow life and time for that to happen without putting my whole anxiety on that it's hard to do but that's part of the work that's part of the work and that's hard because we may need to do the work but it's it's hard it's called work I guess for a reason because you have to continue as you said continue to work on it it's not something that you do and then you just oh I'm good I'm good now it's a constant working on your mindset and all of that. You wrote a book called Flipping the Script on Infertility. I want to know what inspired you to write this book and was there any healing aspects for your journey in writing the book? Great question. I knew I was going to write a book for about four years. I tried writing different things and I didn't get very far with it. And I always thought I was going to write something about infertility something but I wasn't sure and it really came together when you know I I, I trained as a therapist as a counsellor and I qualified and I wasn't sure I was going to work with infertility at first because it was a bit close to the bone but the more I did my own Mm -hmm. you know inner work and my own internal work and kind of let go of my stuff I decided okay this is where I'm called to work so I'm just going to do it as needed. And that's when the book came about. And I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm going to write the book. And it was a weird point in time. It was back at the beginning of infamous 2020. Mm-hmm. And it felt like a bit of a weird time to sit down and write a book. But I did it anyway, because I, I felt like it was the thing that nobody was writing about. Nobody was talking about. Nobody was speaking about, really. And I thought I need to write, I need to not just have my Instagram page, but I need to write a book on this. I need to help people through it because you can find lots of books about IVF and how to get through that and nutrition and fertility and your eggs. And, but nobody was talking about the mental and the emotional side of it. And I thought it was a disservice to women, really, that nobody was talking about it. And so it felt like the book that Mm -hmm. I needed or would have wanted to read or at least, you know, know about when I was going through the journey. So for me, it was healing because it was almost like writing it for me five years previously who would have needed it and to help me Mm -hmm. understand 
the things that I was connecting the dots about, about actually this is a life crisis. This is an existential crisis. This was huge for me. I think most people, when you sit in front of your doctor or your fertility doctor, they just see a woman who can't get pregnant. Whereas when I got me going through it myself and then also training as a therapist saw it as actually this is an existential crisis for this person. This is absolutely mm-hmm. huge. This is their entire world. And nobody was speaking to that. And so I thought like, this is the book. It talks about the mental health and the emotional side. Also, I call it a self-therapy in a book because there's lots of journal practices to work through, lots of questions, lots of things that come up. It it takes you on a real deep dive into things that probably you wouldn't expect from an infertility book. I talk about the relationship with Mm -hmm. your own mother. I talk about your childhood and trauma and things like that because it is there. It's all present. I always say that infertility doesn't happen in a bubble. It happens within the context of your life. And so every part of your life is affected. And so this book really speaks Mm -hmm. to that. Yeah. And it's like you said, a book you work through. Yeah. So it's not something you're just going to be reading for the information. There's a lot of work to be done. And I think you have so many wonderful points in the book that are so helpful. And as you said, we don't speak about it. No. I mean, hopefully we're going to get to the point where that's going to be normal. At this point, it's not something we work on. You go to see your doctor And I think part of that is, is patients, when they come to see me, is, well, my patients wanted to be pregnant last year or two years ago. And so the idea of me coming to them with, let's work on these mindfulness or mindset techniques, that's hard to accept because we want to get things done quickly, as we talked about. Yeah. And I think the idea is, it's quickly because it's, Again, there's a lot of fear around that, around a fear of, I don't have time. And so a lot of the mindset work is about that. Like, actually, there is time and you do need time, especially when there's been losses or failed cycles. I think one of the major disservices we do is throwing women back into another cycle after a failed cycle. That actually, there does need time to... Just let things settle, let things process. We underestimate the processing time because there's a, there's a fear. And so part of my work is really about eliminating fear, that fear is a thought in the mind and we just get to work with that and don't let it kind of overtake us and overtake our anxieties really. But there's no quick way around this. There's no quick way to get pregnant when you're on this journey. If there is <laughs> and someone is sending that magical pill good on them but you know what works for one isn't going to work for everyone and so a lot of the time the women I work with are very resentful of that I know friends who they don't have to do this they don't have to do this work why do I Mm -hmm. everyone gets their point everyone gets their struggle nobody gets through this life unscathed Mm -hmm. we just all need to have a little bit of compassion for ourselves and other people yeah it's a Wonderful book. I think anybody who's listening, I encourage you to get that and to work through it. I encourage you to work with a infertility counselor like Kezia or infertility coach. Can you tell us the difference? Because I think a lot of people may not be familiar with working with a coach and you do a little bit of both. For me, counseling is really the supportive, you know, um, really processing emotion. 
So processing the grief, the sadness, the anger, the losses, what happened, sometimes even childhood or things that come up or triggers. And it's really about processing all of that. Whereas I do mindset coaching, but coaching is far more directive. It's more about the client really wanting to make huge changes in terms of, you know, how they're thinking, how they're managing their, their mindset. And it really has a quite a knock-on. It could have a knock-on effect into their lives as well. But it, it's far more directional. Like you're actually, you'll have things to go away and do. So I don't know how other fertility coaches work, but I'm sure they'll be coaching you to go into your doctor's with all these different kinds of information, maybe in question or whatever. But for me with mindset, it's really about, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go away and journal. I want you to go away and try this technique. I want you to go away and try this reframe. And then we come back and we talk about it. They're both quite deep dives really, but yeah, I do far more talking in coaching than I do when I'm in a, a counseling role because I'm far more directive. It's more of a co-creation, I would say, in the coaching relationship, whereas the therapy is where you really feel held and supported through what you're going through. So yeah, they are slightly different depending on what your needs are. Yeah, I think that there's a place for both. One of the things I like to ask all my guests is the idea that unfortunately infertility can take over your entire life, as you talked about it being this existential crisis. And I always try to encourage couples to try to find joy while they're on the fertility journey. And while that's extremely difficult, and you know, I don't want to downplay that this is something easy, I think it's important to find joy in the small things because I think often there's this idea that we can't enjoy anything when we're going through this process. How do you currently cultivate joy in your life these days? That's my thing for this year is to cultivate more joy. The biggest way is gratitude. Gratitude is a major point for me. It always brings me back to the joy in the moment and being present. So gratitude is just like being grateful for something that happened in the day. It could be small, it could be big, but gratitude is always a big part of my practice. And joy for me is really the more present I am, the more I find joy. I think a lot of the times I'm a bit of an overthinker. I don't know if overthinking is the word, but I like to think, I like to analyze. I can be in my head quite a lot. Um, thinking about all different kinds of things in the future and the past, whatever. And I think when we're on this infertility journey, we're very rarely present. We're usually, and it sounds weird, but we're very usually like caught up in like what's gone on before, the losses, the, the cycles that haven't worked. And then we're projecting that forward into the future. Like, well, what if it happens again? So we're very rarely present. But coming into the present moment is about really finding the joy in the now. Unfortunately, infertility can make us focus on the one thing that isn't going right. And there's so much other stuff that we're missing. And so when we come into the present moment, you get to, yeah, take notice. Just noticing all the things that are good, all the things that are wonderful. So that's that. And the other part of it is... I made myself a promise to do the thing that I want to do, which is quite hard because I think we all have demands on our time. Mm -hmm. 
and our lives and from different people, work and family. But having the courage to say no when it's a no and having the courage to say yes when it's a yes, but really tuning into what feels right for me. And, you know, we're all, we're women, so we tend to be people pleasers. So I'm breaking up Mm -hmm. with my people pleaser (laughs) and, you know, doing the, doing the things that I want to do that feel good for me rather than compromising on that and doing things that I'd rather not do because that just leads to resentment. So that's how I'm cultivating joy is just leading myself to do the things I really want to do and letting go of anything else that doesn't quite bring me joy. I love that. That's something I actually have been working on myself is just having the idea to stay in the present rather than constantly being in the future or the past. That's something I dealt with for many years. And only until I went through a mindfulness course realized that I was doing that, that I wasn't really present in the moment. And you miss so much when you're not present in the moment. It it can feel like a bit of an obscure thing when you hear people talking about the present moment. You think, well, I'm present. Of course I'm present. But like you said, through mindfulness and and me, through my therapy um, work, was realizing that actually we're here in the now, but we're either in the past or we're in the future. But we're we're doing that now. And the only thing that is ever eternal is now, this eternal present moment. The only thing we ever have is now. So when we're worried about time running out, well, we're doing that now. Time isn't really running out because it's not there yet, you know? And so it's this really amazing thing that when you come in the present moment, you can really appreciate that and you can appreciate those things a little bit more because you're aware and there's nothing now I just want to be clear there's nothing wrong with thinking about things in the past or thinking about things in the future mindfulness is about being conscious of doing those things because a lot of time we're doing it unconsciously and so we are triggered by those things Mm -hmm. or we are responding to those things rather than responding to what's actually happening in the present moment and so that's all the present moment is being really conscious and aware of Am I thinking about the past or am I thinking about the future and what is happening right now for me? It's wonderful practice when you start to do it, but it does take, like anything, a bit of a practice to mm-hmm. get into that kind of mind frame. Well, thank you so much, Kezia, for being here today with me. Honestly, I could talk to you for another hour or two. We have so much that we could just keep talking about, but I can't keep you longer. Please tell us how listeners can connect with you. Yeah, of course. You can find me on Instagram at I am um, Facebook at the Infertility Counselor. And my website is www.keziorokafor.com. It's been great. Thank you for having me. And don't forget to get Kezia's book, Flipping the Script on Infertility. Thank you so much, Kezia. And please check her out on Instagram. She shares so much wonderful information. I can't stress that highly enough. The Fertility Journeys podcast. Thank you for listening today. Episodes of Fertility Journeys drop every week. Follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. Next time on the Fertility Journeys podcast. 
We know that infertility does not discriminate and often the support is not there for minority women. And my next guest is trying to change that with her platform, Brown Girl Infertility. Welcome, Saida Boss. Fertility treatment causes a tremendous amount of stress on a couple. What kind of advice do you have for couples? Approach it as a team and not ever lose sight of the fact that you're one unit working together on treatment goals, how you will approach important decisions around limits of how many attempts you both are willing to make. When are we taking a break? How much money are we going to put into this? When do we stop if we do divvying up responsibilities, involving each other in appointments, going to things together, things like that. There's a lot of emotional burden and you and your partner are not the same. When we went to couples therapy, we learned about love languages and coping styles and listening styles and helping styles. And so I definitely want to put a plug in for couples therapy. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.